Hey all, this is a two-part episode, so if you are listening to this episode first, you are doing it wrong. Uh, go back and listen to part one first, and then listen to this one. Thanks. Yo, you ever you ever just be like living your daily life, and and y- you wanna you wanna fulfill a long-held like child dream, like become a hero, and and you go off, you train your hardest, you come back three years later, y- you've become an unstoppable. It's it's this, this hero shit. It's like it's too easy. It's not even like anything in your dreams. It just turns out that the, this adult life you've always been fantasizing for yourself is just some dull, mundane thing, and you're just going through the motions. Even worse now, there's the Heroes Association. What the fuck was that shit? You were here before the Heroes Association. <laughs> they have they have their rules and regulations. They're giving these boring ass tests. You're not here for these tests. Go there. You score. You have some hot young shed shot like nineteen year old who who has the sponsorship of, of, his, of his father and boom he's in like right in an investment firm almost named partner at his father's legal firm and you're just here getting out of college and you have to pay back loans and that's and then and that's some bald guy that did push ups and sit ups comes and uh, beats you in one punch yeah <laughs> you've got this sweet ass bike you've been you've been fighting all your life. <laughs> You put your entire body on the line, and then you watch this one dude defeat the, Wait, the giant frog <laughs> monster that's destroyed the city in one punch. And what do you get? <laughs> Not even the, the damages for your bicycle. Class C. <laughs> you know, that that's actually word for word what I tell people uh, when they uh, ask me in an interview, like, what I want to do with my life and why I don't have a job yet. <laughs> like well so i just say exactly what you just said careful so yeah, yeah. Copy, uh, copy. so <laughs> that's what i hear um so basically yeah next uh i i point out that at the root of all revenue collection by businesses is the rationing of industry um mm-hmm. so bickler and i call it sabotage um, mm-hmm. I think sabotage fits a lot of what they do, but a lot of it is also just straight rationing. Um, uh-huh. And the first example, of course, is insulin, where people mm-hmm. literally cannot afford their insulin, so they have to ration it and often like die, which is just fucked. Um, because like they just raised the price on it. That's the only reason that this happened. It has nothing to do with the realities of industry. It's just some businesses decided uh, we're not making enough money from this insulin. So now the price is higher and now people are dying. Well, oh, well, you know, that's not our fault. They just can't afford it. They should have gotten a better job. Let's see. This is where the laws of uh, supply and demand come in. And oh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. You might not see it yet. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> um, it kind of sucks because it, it – like you said, this is like an artificial rationing where, I yeah. mean, they just artificially raise the price because this is this isn't something where it does work like supply and demand, which is something just for like what I guess you call that like microeconomics, some, some old bullshit. Um, <laughs> but when companies grow to this extent and they have as much power as they wield and they have a sort of exclusivity, especially over these drugs, which they then patent out and they get the exclusive rights to produce, they tomorrow they can just be like, yeah, this doesn't cost um, 
an affordable amount anymore. You're now forking over $2,000 a month to have this life-saving, uh, to have this life-saving drug given to you. Uh, whereas previously it might've been something affordable, like, like $80. Like I don't, I, I mean, I, I know like the markup for a lot of, uh, prescription medication has drastically increased. And like you said, like people have literally died from, this. um, I think that like one of the most heartbreaking one is, is like, you know, seeing like a GoFundMe $50 short of getting, uh, a insulin yeah. thing and and the yeah. end to that story is then the guy just dies like that yeah. the end that's so fucked man um so we should uh take that 50 bucks and you know buy us some bullets yeah um so i was watching that um the series by that the guy who does the all right playbook and he had a video where he was like explaining conservatism and uh God. <laughs> basically like the the fundamental part of conservatism is like the belief that hierarchies are natural and just and so like their argument when you talk about drug prices is always well uh they use the profits to research drugs so without them you wouldn't have drugs because um you know, nobody would be paying for research or whatever. Right. Which is essentially just saying, like, whatever happens to the peasants is justified because the lords of the pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, they are in their proper place and right. they right. they know what's best for you and you should just shut up bec- and, like, you know, know your place because right. uh, they're the ones that are saving people's lives in the first place. Right, right. Well, and 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 also the the constant uh, talk of uh, laziness of the poor mm-hmm. that the poor deserve to be poor because Which if they're you read, lazy. If you read yeah. Econ from like uh, the seventeenth century, they're saying the exact same shit that oh, yeah. they're all it's talking all, about the indolent uh, peasants. It's all this bullshit. <laughs> yeah, the thing right that those thoughts were transmitted to conservatives from. Nobility and merchants, because those people via their reptile organs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Those people wanted people to work harder, and somehow felt entitled, or just wanted to spread lies and propaganda about how you know they deserve to be in these positions of you know owning property and, and owning yep. the right to distribute and have distribution of coalitions, and that the workers and peasants and so forth, um, when they didn't comply to like whatever fucking whim they came up with, you know, Oh, it's because you're lazy and bad. You know, you're literally of of poor moral character, you know, and you're a subhuman beast and, and all this shit. Right. Because vagrant, et cetera. (laughs) Exactly. Because like, I think it was uh, American Johnson did, did like a non-compete episode about like um, capitalist performativity and how like you perform these roles that are like, not you, but they are fitted to um, the, the 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 necessary kind of flow of power into other people, essentially, right? Like they're there to get shit for other people, right? And so, like, uh, non cooperation um, is just a, one of the ways that people resist uh, that stuff, you know. So it's kind of hilarious when libs are like resist, and then they 
do exactly what they've always done, which is almost, you know, it's just performance. Right. Exactly. Right. So you're like, okay, you know, I mean, have you tried burning a trash can? I don't know. Um, well, uh, yeah. I mean, so, it, it could work, but, but guys, isn't that like illegal though? Right. Exactly. Right. And that's the thing is it's like the, this is uh, speaking of the lib thing about like, you know, politics and economics are distinct and all this bullshit. Um, but also like, Oh, well, if there's legal and electoral, um, uh, mechanisms, then we can just use those there. It's like a vast machine that they just assume, you know, it's either broken, uh, when they, when they don't like it and when they do like it or they don't really mind it, then it's fixed and it's working. And they're just like, well, just, we'll just, we'll just press the buttons and make it work. And, and it's just this weird myth, but that's just, I mean, I mean, that's one of the worst things. I mean, I know where I've worked, um, a lot of things it is told us like, you know, if you don't like it, guys, then, you know, just stick it through, get promoted, and then change right. things when you're on the other side. Right, and it's like, right. Well, well, how about, how about, how about we now? Just change it now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all social. It's, it's, yeah. 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 It, I mean, it's dumb because I'm, I'm, I'm especially pissed off because I, I got called in early into work today because they decided uh-huh. to do one of these like bullshit like oh let's do a, a leadership seminar and it's like uh, two hours early into work for for this bullshit and it's basically mm-hmm. talking about like so when you guys are supervisors and everything you have to think about how you're going to handle your guys and you know it's important to remember to treat them like people and it's like you get two hours <laughs> and it's like, why can't you just start treating us like people like by goddamn now yeah right right I'm going to handle my guys like Nestor Machno. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's get it done. Um, yeah. I was also thinking like, um, you know, like modern liberals are very conservative as well because like they sort of have the same belief system where the system is just and the the hierarchies are are just as long as they are the ones that are in the right place like they're the ones that are supposed to be in charge and uh-huh. if they're not uh-huh. in charge anything that happens this bad is just because they're not the ones that are in charge of it it's not because right the exactly wrong. yeah yeah well and, and this is yeah exactly like they believe in a in a kind of um you know technocratic hierarchy um where they're like, oh, no, no, you see that other stuff. That's, you know, that conservative stuff, that reactionary stuff. That's just, you know, that's Hobbesian brutality. And we don't like that. And, you know, so it's like they're going with a kind of an aesthetic, like an, like a, an emotional impulse that is correct. But there, again, there's no power analysis. It's kind of like with ANCAPs. There's no power analysis. There's no, there's no actually looking under the fucking cover or the hood or whatever you want to call it. You know, there's no actual getting into the fucking dirt with what's, you know, like let's talk, let's talk about why the poor people are poor. Right. And this is, I think why there's, I guess you could even extend this to like even nominal like communists where Mm -hmm. they fundamentally believe that the state is, is just, but all the problems of society stem from, you know, communists not being in charge of it. Well, I think, well, I think that the, the idea, I, I, I get where you're coming from and maybe you're just the way you're phrasing it rubs me a little wrong, but like, it's more that the, concept... I mean, it's like a small subset of communists. Oh, okay. And okay, a lot okay, of them say, came like... into power through communist revolutions. Right. Right. I think, I think that if I'm also not, you know, misinterpreting it, it's that like they see the state as like 
uh, kind of like a modern innovation of society about society. And so it's like, it's more value neutral. And so if they can just make the quote unquote dictatorship of the proletariat where, so it's a bit, and I, I don't want to say this too strongly because I don't want to piss off any like commies who might be listening, who I do like, uh, but like any dirty bit, tankies. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, not even them. Foolishly like, listen to our podcast, even though we're anarchists <laughs> and we hate them. <laughs> right. Right. Um, we have to, we, you know, we can't break our own distributional coalition of, of podcasting. Um, but, uh, the idea that, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat um, must kind of arise out of the, the, you know, the dialectic between roles and everything else. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I it's, mean, there's the interpretation that that's just like a turn of phrase and that it means that the lower class should be in charge of themselves. And then there's the people right. who think it should be like a literal and dictatorship, which I literal, think is probably right, a tiny right. fringe minority. Creation of apparatchiks. They, they do yeah, exist. Yeah. 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 Well, I was, well, what I was going to say is I'm going to draw a comparison with between that particular interpretation uh, of that phrase and that concept of, of revolution uh, and the liberal idea of kind of like a liberal technocracy where they're like, oh, if we just if we just put our enlightened selves um, into the um, echelons then we will use that enlightenment and that technical savvy and you know the wonky shit that we have um to you know to make things better right um but i I will just you know granted liberals want to maintain the existing state generally speaking and they just want to sit in the seats that already exist and communists generally want to uh, recompose the state in some other form right so anyway yeah. Uh, so the next thing here is um, I talk about modern monetary theory and how it kind of revives chartalism, which is the theory, and when I say theory, I mean explanation of reality, of course, uh, that money is a fiction of the state and that it is essentially used to, uh, as I say often on the show, uh, to mobilize a subjugated workforce uh, using the currency that they issue. Um, through the mechanisms of taxation, property ownership, uh, rent, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so in the last uh, probably like, what, 50, 70 years or so, there's been this ideology developed, uh, which I think we decided was called metalism, um, which is essentially the idea that money comes from people being taxed and that any government spending has to be done through taxation. And so you have to explain how to pay for everything uh, if you're going to propose that the government do stuff. And so that's the uh, the common refrain of liberals and conservatives both uh, to any suggestion of a not even socialist but you know socially beneficial program like Medicare is how do you pay for it, which – you know, the reality is that it doesn't matter how you pay for it. All you're doing is mobilizing the labor that is already subjugated to the state yeah. and doing so through, you know, spending money. And all you have to do is just create that money if you don't have it because you are the state. <laughs> right. Maybe. Right. Exactly. Maybe that's uh, the, the thing is. um even even though uh, I I don't know h- how you're using uh, subjugated 
to the state uh, in that sentence. But it's like, you know, I, I, I think the thing is, is, is that, you know, doctors and insurance companies currently are like, you know, they certainly pay taxes. So they're subjugated in, in that sense. But, but like the doctors and insurance workers themselves are more so subjugated to these private forces. And it's and it's likely well, when like I say private- state when I say state, I'm also including businesses. So like the fact that we have to pay for stuff in order to live our daily lives uh, you know, you're paying organs of the state, which are businesses. Ah, and so see, to be a subjugated yeah. worker just means you have to earn money. Oh yeah, you got me. You got me there, fam. That's actually yeah. That's a, okay. Now I'm with you. And uh, oh yeah, <laughs> um, corporations in particular, um, like like just you know, quote unquote businesses, but corporations in particular. Um, uh, we kind of covered this in a, at least one episode before, but um, since they have a kind of have this kind of hierarchical structure, they're kind of like they're kind of like free floating cancerous bodies within the body of the state that like, um, well, they're like they're like I mean, unofficial yeah. government agencies, basically unofficial agencies. Exactly. Semi official. You said organs already. So I'm, now I'm fucking up the metaphor, but like, oh, OK, <laughs> yeah, I, know, I said but, that. but they're cancerous for us <laughs> is, is the problem. Yeah. Um, and they and they but they're essentially you know because they have institutional uh, legal backing and, um, and and so forth um they're really just uh they kind of have to be buddy buddy with the state in some sense and the state has to be buddy buddy with them and so the distinction between the two is actually not very significant um oh definitely and and yeah. certainly not from a lot of people's perspective uh mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's like the literal government or if it's mm-hmm. um like Blue Cross Blue Shield, like who the fuck yeah, cares? Yeah. You're forking over money, yeah. and that, that's like you're under you're under somebody's thumb. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly, and and that's yeah. That. And so the government could easily just you know hand of God create and destroy any of these any of these businesses if they wanted to. The mm-hmm. problem is that they are controlled by. Parts of the same upper class that control those businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sad thing, is, the sad thing yeah. is, like the hand doesn't want it to destroy itself in in, the, in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it essentially allows, like, we have this this fiction that we're in a democracy, you know. Which, <laughs> if you've studied enough, you know that we're not. But even right. if you take that at its face, we have like the vast majority of our society is organized under business and business is just an autocracy. So it's like kind of a Trojan horse for, you know, getting everyone to be subject to these mini dictatorships or exactly the case of large corporations, like regular size dictatorships. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, if you, if you want to go to the, you know, the, the, the favorite extreme example of every leftist, you know, um, that's why fascism does what it does, right? Uh, you know, nationalizing corporations within this, like within and, and in conjunction with the state so that all of the autocracies are brought under the same head autocracy, you know, using all this sort of jargon and ideology and, and, and aesthetics and propaganda of things like family and tradition in order to seal social bonds to the, um, you know, the, the, the hierarchical, oppressive, um, autocratic apparatus, which embodies the state and corporations. Um, yeah. So, 
and then uh, I think probably the saddest part out of all of this is even backing up back to the argument, well, how are you going to pay for this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly the example that everyone always brings up by necessity because it's the largest part of our spending is like when you look at military spending, no one a- ever asks like, how are you going to pay for all of these bombs that we're going to just drop on children in any number of, of countries uh, like Yemen? Like no one ever asks how you're going to pay for that. We just fucking forked over the bombs and everything. I mean, that's that's a large part of our the remaining industry within the United States that we haven't deindustrialized is just weapons manufacturing for our military and militaries abroad that just do what we want them to do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and Bickler and Nitzan call war the ultimate act of sabotage and point out how often it's used to um, to profit businesses which I think we all became keenly aware of during the Iraq War. Which they predicted, by the way. Uh, that's another thing <sighs> I oh, mentioned damn. in this article is they literally predicted the Iraq War using their theory of capitalism, which I think is like, you know, what better endorsement of it is there than that? <laughs> that's actually, like, pretty crazy that um <laughs> that you could, like, isolate a variable like that, um like, what, the oil barrel price? Yeah, it's uh, it's the differential stock, uh, differential capitalization of oil companies. So basically, like they have this uh, group of oil companies that they call the the Petrocor, and so they look at their like the total outstanding value of all their stocks uh, relative to the rest of that industry, and mm-hmm. um, when that difference, like when the difference between the top oil companies and the rest start to drop, uh, then it's followed by some sort of war in an energy rich area. That's, that's absolutely dystopic. That That's, that's <laughs> yeah. a real analysis that, that gets scary. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense in, in uh-huh. hindsight and especially uh, when you consider um, how uh, the the war drums beat for Venezuela and now they're beating for Iran, two of the exactly. places that have very large oil reserves and ha- have a large portion of their economy dependent upon the oil. That's yeah. I mean, there's also like a, there's also a component to it of like neocon ideology, where right. like one of the things that really made me like. Um, like just virulently opposed to conservatism was this video that I saw probably in like 2010, 2011, where some like secretary of defense was, and I think this was like a leaked thing, um, was saying like our plans are to uh, basically, he didn't say this, but like to start wars in uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, um, like basically every every war that we've gone through in the past two decades was like named as a target in like like the 1980s. Like they were planning to do all this shit, and I don't know if it was because of the the oils thing or if it was just because like that like they are ideologically like you know white supremacists like anti-Muslim etc. 
I mean, it all just lines up so well. It ends up reinforcing each yeah. other. I mean, yep. and I mean, at this point, it it, it 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 begs the question whether you even need the chicken or the egg question. I mean, they're both fucking there at this point. Yeah, there's, you know, eggs and uh, chickens and chicken com all over the place, and it's just a big mess. Yeah, just awful. <laughs> So uh, chicken, chicken and egg bukkake. Oh, oh god! Uh, there's our anime tie-in. Yeah, <laughs> 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 that's 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 one way to make your amru rice. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, so next I I talk about how uh, kind of we already kind of mentioned it, like uh, the state controls the rationing system that we have. Um, taxes, prices, and wages are the rationing system. Uh, taxes are controlled by the government, which is one half of the state. Uh, prices are controlled, uh, like mostly directly, but sometimes through a, like a power struggle uh, by the other half of the state, which is corporations. And then you know, wages obviously are like a very conflictual process between workers and corporations in the state, or in, in the government rather. Um, so basically, like the government can prevent any form of suffering that they they choose, uh, they just choose not to because uh, I mean, some, they are the tool of the upper class. Yeah, I, I was I was about to say sometimes they do prevent suffering, but usually just for like the rich. I mean, I remember a tax cut going well, through. Sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of uh, rich people suffering, I think, was prevented, um, and with the with the with the presidency. Uh, they certainly got their tax cuts through, and it, I mean the most interesting point is like the price setting because that is definitely because um, we mentioned earlier like uh, how they've done that in the, certainly in the pharmaceutical industry, but I mean that that happens all across the board um, because the, the firms are so large at this point that they just literally decide what the price point is and how they're going to run that, and there's no input that you can put back into that. Um, in any way that makes any sense, it's especially when yeah, just look- having control of the entire supply of something as important to people's lives as insulin means you have total pricing power. You can charge people whatever you fucking want. Yeah, and and, and the worst part is like even these power struggles, which which uh, I think a lot of liberal economists would say would alleviate the the ideas of monopolies like yeah if you if you if you get too complacent and you keep your prices too high uh you know some your competitors will come in and undersell you it's like yeah but that shit doesn't happen yeah I that mean, thing you... that totally <laughs> happens yeah exactly yeah <laughs> thing that yeah, only yeah, happens I, I remember what i was gonna say it's it, also like um you know inflation which is prices going up over time um uh is is blamed by People, like people who are in favor of this system, blame inflation on the government by saying that inflation is a product of the government issuing too much money. Usually, uh, this is brought up in the context of any sort of socially beneficial programs that the government creates. So if they were to do a Green New Deal or Medicare for All, and they uh, paid for it by printing money, then uh, that would be... In, that would disrupt the the hierarchy, the the proper hierarchy, the proper order of things, and cause inflation, 
uh, which is when too much money chases too few goods, and that devalues money, and so uh, you're actually being counterproductive. Whereas in reality, inflation is when prices go up. It's You can think of it as money being devalued, but that doesn't mean that's what it actually is. That's just a metaphor. And right. the actual cause of it is business businesses increasing their power over society, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dang. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say one of the reasons – I think that honestly the, the, the ultimate logic of – like the, the kind of mechanistic logic of uh, causing – keeping wages stagnated, um, keeping – like continuing to raise prices and so forth – um, and, and creating, you know, increasing that difference between, uh, the, the classes through income and, and income security and stuff, uh, really just to pressure labor into becoming more compliant, right? Like it's not necessarily about, I mean, a lot of times, yes, it is about cruelty, but most of it seems to me to be this kind of cold lizardy logic of like, we just want them to compete more, to work more. Um, and how are we going to do that? We will, you know, we'll do bullshit jobs. We'll, we'll do, um, you know, lower wage prices and higher uh, commodity prices and property prices and so forth. And use that. Yeah, I was going to mention this earlier, yeah. um, but a lot of the ideology behind this, like, they have their side of it, which is like, we deserve to be here because we're better than everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then the flip side of that is uh, the poor deser- like should be suffering because right. that's actually better for them. Right, in, in right. The, in the 17th century or the 18th century, I can't remember which fucking one it was. But anyway, it mm-hmm. was like scarcity is good for the peasants because when, mm-hmm. when times are scarce, they become more industrious and that makes them happier. Right. They're using France as an example of this, and, yeah. and Scotland as a counterexample where they had plenty and they were like lazy and didn't do anything, and so that meant they were sad, and <laughs> that carries through today where, you know, you're supposed to be happier if you work hard and yeah. and earn your keep. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and it kind of has to do. I I am sure that um, a lot of our more kind of philosophically grounded and educated friends would be able to actually. Uh, make this point more clearly and with more precision, but uh, philosophy and ideology and um, social theories as kind of a subset of philosophy or sub, you know, um, topic of philosophy uh, Mm -hmm. for a long, long time. And even until the present day in various groups and circles, um, it was this kind of like, I will come up with, a thought experiment about the world or I'll come up with in my own head, some kind of model and then I'll go out and I'll kind of, you know, find uh, confirmation for it in the world via confirmation bias basically and say, Oh, see, you see virtue is good. And virtue is what I say it is based on my kind of weird aristocratic sort of quasi biblical or quasi religious anyway. Aristotlecratic. Yeah, right. Exactly. And then I'll go out and I'll find a bunch of peasants, you know, having a fucking break because they fucking earned it. And I'll say, these people are being lazy and I don't like it because I already have like a classist mentality. So then I'll come up with a reason why I don't like that, but I'll say it's logical. And then, you know, 
all this a priori bullshit. Um, so, you know, for hundreds of years, aristocrats and merchants have, have been dining on their own shit and then calling it philosophy and passing it on to us as like canon. Um, and this is one reason I think why uh, the various leftist thinkers uh, were so explosive and why they're so dangerous even now, even if we now say, well, you know, they're a little outdated and stuff, they're still extremely relevant in that they overturn a lot of this kind of weird a priori and like virtue based thinking um, in like at least the Western canon. Um, Whereas yeah, just and bunch of fucking dickheads projecting onto people who don't have any money, you know. <laughs> and even uh, within, uh, I know uh, the black community in America, where there isn't necessarily that long uh, intellectual tradition, simply by virtue of their culture being robbed from them, um, you have figures such as uh, Booker T. Uh, Booker Washington. And he is one like one of the early capitalists, and he he um, preaches for uh, for the African American community to to advance themselves through capitalism. You have the right to work now. Uh, you're no longer slaves. If you work, you can uh, find success in the system. And there there are people who then follow uh, Booker T. Washington, both while he's actively saying this, you have like early socialist figures such as um, like um, George Woodby, who's a um, black socialist preacher who was active around the time of the IWW actually entered into the national uh, socialist party that ran Eugene Debs uh, who opposed him within the African-American community talking how, like the only way out of of uh, the situation that uh, black people find themselves in would be through some sort of uh, syndicalism. You have uh, W.E.B. Dubois, who, who critiques him at the time and also after the fact, saying that, you know, as African-Americans entered the capitalist system, you only recreated the same system of haves and have-nots of the white community. Yeah. Uh, before Booker T. Washington, you have somebody like Peter H. Clark, uh, who spoke during the time? Did uh, Boulay exist at, at this point, or was that before that? Um, Boulay. Yeah. Uh, oof. Um, I actually I can't I can't place him off the top of my head because um because I mean I'm I've done a little bit of reading um just enough to know what I know and maybe even not enough yet to know what I don't know yet about uh, the African-American intellectual tradition, especially for leftists, because it's so hidden, because uh, it, it gets neglected. They don't typically hook that well into the white leftist tradition, and right. even the white leftist uh, tradition in, in the United States is a bit better, even though that's neglected overall within the history system. I mean, that goes doubly so for the black community, and they the, the records for them, and they're... Uh, their writings and their speakings is even worse. I've got to dig even deeper uh, to get at them. Uh, Reasons why I think uh, groups like the Black Socialists of America do a service, if only like for the historical value to start helping people connect back into traditions, which were, which are lost for the most part. Yeah. Uh, So Uh, I I just, I just found it. It it was founded in 1904. So probably that was happening before that was founded yeah um because yeah. i mean i know that booker t washington was active in the early 20th century so i mean basically 
Um, oh, members of oh, include W E D B Du Bois. Yeah, the first one they name here. So, and 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 like I mean, the big thing he's known for is the the founding of the NAACP, um, which unfortunately is a long way from the uh, from perhaps its radical nature back in the early twentieth century. It's sort of become this liberal institution, which sort of just uh, lends itself to legitimization of the state solely by its existence, recognizing. Uh, more so like uh, high-ranking military officials and politicians within the black community um, and other people of cultural uh, significance uh, rather than continuing to advocate for radical change. The reason why you need other organizations to enter in, like uh, Black Lives Matter, um, who once again I brought to the forefront uh, conditions faced almost significantly by uh, African Americans, and probably you need it to happen again because even with that organization, you're starting to see it sort of being subsumed into the machine. Uh, right. But neither here nor there. Uh, we're far away off of yeah. Just talking about. Uh, well, I don't whatever. think we're that far off because I, I was I was thinking that it seems like with like I mean we're basically talking about red- redistributional coalitions, and like yes. it seems that. If you get into one of these high-level positions in the organization's hierarchy and you have enough wealth, then you kind of, you know, settle on everything being fine now. And it it kind of, like, I don't know, maybe if you're, like, uh, someone who's kind of a radical, uh, at least to some degree, and then you get into, like, one of these positions in these redistributional coalitions, then your radicalism sort of disappears because you're fine and, you know, your empathy doesn't go far enough to continue your work or whatever, I guess. Oh, cer- certainly. And, and I think you find that because at one point, um, W.E.B. Dubois, um, not necessarily known for being the most outspoken, like, anti-capitalist or communist, um, certainly with not none of those who would follow him, but... Um, he at one point wrote about how uh, under FDR, uh, capitalism had a progressive character, which almost seemed like maybe you could preserve the system if it only continued to make the same sort of changes that you saw under FDR, um, which a little bit lacks the, the power analysis that FDR necessarily isn't the one responsible for those changes because he's responding to a militant labor uprising, which upends just the state control through taxes and the business control through prices, because now the overall distributional coalition, labor unions enter on the scene in a major way, which threatens to upend both hierarchies. So, yeah. I mean, that progressive coalition can only be found, you, you can only find like the government willing to reduce the suffering um, in taxes and start pulling the leash on corporations only when it's ha- n- when the gun is to its head basically yeah um so i i clicked on wb du bois here uh on wikipedia and it says he's a pan-africanist and that that was that got me thinking that like that's sort of uh a movement for a large like a very large distributional coalition where um, you're not necessarily opposed to there being a social hierarchy, 
but if you can, uh, you would like all of your like all of your people to be, you know, in this big group that benefits from that hierarchy. Because I don't know, it, it seems like um, there's a lot of people that are not socialists that are pan Africanists, and I I've always wondered like why those ideas can are compatible. <clears throat> like being a capitalist and a pan-Africanist. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, th- I think the there are a lot of things theorized, and I, I have I really am under underread in this way to to, to speak yeah. up. So, like, why like uh, pan-Africanism um, would be uh, compatible with capitalism? I mean, but overall, it's I mean the the first and foremost. Uh, uh, concern, I think, with African Americans was the, the yoke of slavery, and after that's overthrown, right. like that looks like the big hurdle you got to climb in order to have, uh, you know, your life righted. Um, even though I think uh, George Woodby, um, which is one of my first entries into not necessarily Pan Africanism, but just uh, someone within the African American community making an anti-capitalist analysis. Um, also views capitalism as just like the actual big bad behind slavery. Like he, like slavery wasn't just like the final villain uh, yeah. for African-Americans, but it was that, but the, the horrors of, of uh, Chattel slavery are almost unique in their brutality. So yeah. And, and even following slavery, you still have uh, like these extra legal, um, these not sort of against the law, like but the newer these, forms of slavery. Yeah, I mean, like outright racism, the Jim Crow laws. So you have yeah. like the state putting down its thing. You have uh, groups such as like the, the Ku Klux Klan um, actively working to destroy the African American community um, with every chance they got, um, either through the state or outside of the 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 actual state itself uh just through like citizen citizens councils and everything so i mean yeah i mean pan-africanism uh might be a response to uh, racism first and foremost and you don't even have the time to address overall what might be driving it together it's it's not often uh that you do find them eventually tying into a larger socialist movement and even though the communist movement does um did fight against uh the like the evils of racism uh jim crow laws and everything uh fought against segregation uh it isn't that often and sometimes within the early like socialist movements uh of the early 20th century eventually the the same racist uh uh mentality does end up infecting these things and they don't want to work with the the black population. The black black population is sometimes a little bit wary of working with white people and for good reason, (laughs) fair enough. And it's that sort of like tenuous relationship that they have to each other, which uh, I think prevents it from really becoming an ingrained part of, um, of uh, within the black community, like socialism from really taking root all throughout the community. I mean, it's hard enough for anybody to collectivize, but now you're talking about people who are just trying to get the boot off their neck. So, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think part of that is like uh, getting uh, getting people to trust in the ideology and not getting like uh, trying to get black people necessarily on board with white movements. Yeah, and, and that's really what's at the forefront is that, um, I mean, I mentioned that George Woodby entered the Nationalist Socialist Party. Um, at one point, um, he was nominated to be the vice president for uh, Eugene Debs, but the other side to that story and the ending to it is he receives only one vote. Um, because, I mean, he oh, wow. one, he's the only person, only black person at that point in the National Socialist Party, but he still took it upon himself to to enter it because... And at the very least, like he recognizes, like socialism would be a great thing, and it probably would be great for black people. Yeah. But like black, uh, I mean, socialists are just hard to reach out to the black community. And you also have to keep in mind at this point within the black community, there are there's also like this idea of like the black church, and at the same time, there's also the Marxist critique of religion. So they look at um, like the religious black community and they're like, uh, those guys are religious. Um, right. Christianity is actually not the move. I mean, which compl- also ignores like the fact that not only uh, George would be uh, is a socialist Christian, but I mean, with the, even within the white community, there are socialist Christian movements that don't necessarily philosophically ground themselves, but they religiously, ground themselves like a sort of idealism over materialism but it leads you to the same conclusions whether you're doing scientific socialism or you're doing like a a socialism of the heart you know um i mean so there are a lot of things that have kept us apart and that's not to say that you can't form coalitions but there's this idea of autonomy that you would hope that socialism is trying to lead you to to where you're no longer just this you know subjugated person as we were talking about earlier who's subjugated by the state be it by the literal government or corporations. Um, and you want to take that off of you, but within doing that, you don't want to recreate hierarchies where uh, the ma- the marginalized are still pushed to the margins. Right. Also, point of, uh, uh, I think, correction, you were referring to the <laughs> National Socialist Party, and I think you meant the Socialist Party of America. Whoops. Whoops! But yeah, that, that's that's what I meant. I'm sorry. I didn't folks. know what the actual name was, and I I was gonna clarify originally. Like, by the way, this isn't the Nazi Party. This <laughs> isn't. I'm right. so sorry, guys. Is, that but, I, I, I didn't know the name either. Party, so. which is Nazi, but, yeah, we're talking about the Socialist Party of America, which yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. I just figured out from context you're talking about America, and not Germany. I was like, okay, right. so not those Whoops. National Socialists. Maybe they were called the National Socialist Party. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's my guess. Like I'm I said, I don't read enough. I <laughs> yeah. read enough hey, to I know either. what I know, and not even to not know what I don't know yet. So yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I think we kind of we kind of talked about prices not being like yeah, they're not they're, rational so much as yeah. Um, I think one thing I didn't mention in here. Oh no, I did. Okay, yeah. Uh, so studies by Means and Burl, um, they looked to uh, study like corporate practices. I can't remember what their book is called, but um, one of their findings was that uh, prices aren't like the result of the balancing of the forces of supply and demand, mm-hmm. but are basically just like, oh, uh, how much does this? What's the unit cost of this product? Okay, uh, ten dollars. All right. 
So we want a like a twenty percent profit margin. So we're gonna mm-hmm. set the price to twelve dollars for that. Oh. And that's how prices are formed. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I could say it's not some like rational system. It's just uh, businesses controlling distribution, mm-hmm. uh, controlling industry, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think we've covered pretty well. Um, oh, and then uh, I think this is a really um, I didn't get into this quite enough through the rest of it, but like, yeah, the upper class is uh, pretty insulated from any actual failures. Um, Actually, when I was traveling up to Massachusetts, me and my dad were driving together, and uh, he started talking about how Trump is like a bad businessman. And I was like, I mean, not really, because he's still a businessman. Like, if you're a bad businessman, like, that means you will stop and become like a worker. Whereas if you're a good businessman, you can just keep getting fucking money to do whatever the fuck, you know, get yourself paid and basically like do whatever you want. Yeah, and that's what he does, <laughs> and that's like what the upper class is—is is like a bunch of people like bailing themselves out of any trouble that they have, subjugating the lower class. Yep. Yeah, my my dad has a few friends who are like small business tyrants, um, of course, and uh, and so when I first started like popping off about socialism at my dad, um, he, you know, he was like, "Well, what about so and so, and what about so and so?" And I was like, "Ugh," you know, I was like, you know. <laughs> personally when we hang out with them they can work sure. like the rest of us <laughs> yeah right and, and like they're nice but yeah i was like i was like what the what the hell like they're if they're such nice guys they, like why are they rich and their workers not rich you know and my dad's like yeah. hmm. and like in the in the one case um he was like well what about you know my friend uh i'll just i'll just call the guy jim what about my friend jim who has been trying to run this business for like, you know, a couple decades and just can't make any money. And I was like, well, does the business still exist? And he's like, yeah. I was like, dude, like, I was like, dad, that was my first job. I worked at that guy's place because he knows you and I'm your son. Like that was lucky for me <laughs> and the job sucked and I made minimum wage, which is terrible. Uh, I was like, but like he owns a house. It's not a great house. It's not a nice house, but he owns it and his family has lived there all my life. Right. And yeah, yeah, I was like, I was like, so what do you mean he's not making money? And he's like, well, he just has to keep taking loans out and stuff. I was like, okay, well, if that's the case, if he can't get out of debt, then maybe he would prefer to just be a worker. And my dad had no fucking comeback for that one. And he's like, ah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if he's really running out of money, then he's got a problem, right? But if he's not and he's able to stay afloat, then he doesn't have a problem, which means your entire argument just collapses, you know? And it has to do, like you said, with uh, your status as like a business owner, a CEO, whatever, like like credit scores and, 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 and income and like people's judgment of you and reputation and how you deal with finance and the banks and stuff. It all changes when you are, you know, a business tyrant or something. Yeah. And then I think the other side, um, I don't I don't want to steal your march on this um, For sure. because it's in the, it's in the same uh, bullet point, but. Also, as you're insulated from failure, you're also insulated from any of the consequences of your actions at that point, and not just actions, yeah. but like your like literal crimes. Um, and you mentioned yeah. like like the actual insulation from sexual assault, um, mm-hmm. uh, be be they women or children or mm-hmm. both. And uh, 
I, I think uh, we were talking at the beginning, but like this is almost all too uh, prescient at a time when Jeffrey Epstein is back in the news again. Um, yeah. And the first time he got it like a, you know, like a sweetheart deal, 13 months of uh, you're in jail, except when you want to go to work. Um, and you yeah, can- and today uh, the the judge like uh, went around like normal, um, some normal proceedings like uh, that would put a lot of people in jail ordinarily. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't remember exactly what it was. I've had uh one too many sakes at this point but (laughs) yeah today uh yeah there's some sentencing thing that he basically like got around um so that he can just keep doing what he wants while he's accused of um you know raping like dozens or hundreds of women and girls or whatever you know I mean, and not just the assault, but like the trafficking and everything. Like he yeah, said, yeah, he yeah. set up the logistics for all, all of this. And the Lolita Express. Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's like guys like him, Weinstein. I mean, people who sit at the top of these hierarchies who make the most money and they they insulate themselves either with like political connections, with like the sheer amount of money they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you see these things time and time again, whether mm-hmm. it's like, uh, like OJ, uh, getting off cause he just could afford like the lawyer team to argue it out. Or yeah, if, yeah. if you're looking at HR departments, which handle, uh, like within that economic hierarchy and you see, uh, management preying upon their workers. Um, I mean, and not even just for exploitation, but just like sexual assaults again, it's like, you know, the HR department at that point doesn't exist for you. It exists to insulate your senior management. And that's, I mean, that's the real crime because you want to believe, uh, you want to believe that uh, the system in some way exists for some sense of dignity to exist for you. But no, it just really just exists to protect them and insulate them. And you can see that in like the way that, uh, you know, one uh, that one teenage girl uh, licked uh, a thing of bluebell ice oh, cream yeah. and is going away oh, for 20 man. years. And that's like, bam, we closed the book, threw it at her. Bam. No one messes with Texas and bluebell ice cream. People and Jeffrey Epstein has woman. the rape island. And it's like, Ooh, yeah. we can't figure out what to do with this guy. I mean, how can you? I mean, he's contributed so much to society somehow. <clears throat> Right. I mean, it's it's absolutely it's absolutely crazy because you know on the one hand, I mean, you can see it directly because you know one person licks the ice cream, you're scared to you're a little bit scared to eat ice cream at this point. You know, it just makes you a bit more conscious. So so capital has to you know put its foot down on that. But I mean, you know, I mean, who's going to spend any less money? Uh, or even how do you even economically boycott Jeffrey Epstein? How do you do anything against him, which isn't just literal physical violence? It's it's also yeah. immaterial. And the other right. thing that the Epstein uh, case uh, reveals is like how incestuous the upper class is. I know that's an anti-Semitic trope to say upper class or whatever, but uh, <laughs> um, like... Uh, you know, Bill Clinton flew on his plane, um, and you know, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton are friends with Trump, 
and mm-hmm. Epstein donated to like Chuck Schumer and and Clinton and and Bush and all these people like they they have tighter relationships like billionaires have tighter relationships than like most coworkers have oh yeah <laughs> you know? know well let's let's take a i mean let's take a a little uh uh comparison you know uh or a little observation here um when we talk about aristocracies in the past or in or even now in you know where it's formal aristocracy um these are all people who are related to each other who control military power who control land power and labor power somehow or other and they all uh breed with each other uh even when it creates you know um things like the you know Habsburg dude I forget which one you know you know but they they fucking do it because that's part of the 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 coalition maintenance and building um and so when you when you use the term incestuous you know it's only partly a metaphor right uh <laughs> and in fact it brings us you know the concept of like the kind of the quote unquote metaphorical incest uh, within this coalition and how that basically is used um, to kind of uh, bring up how these networks work Um, in traditional aristocracy. That is how it works in fascism. The metaphor of family is how they bring people in, in the, uh, you know, when we talked about uh, the surname studies, you know, the Japanese kazoku, right? That term means both family and noble peerage. It, it's, you know, when the, with the mafia, you, you call it the family, right? All this bullshit is all about building a family, if you will, right? A network that operates like family, but which still fucks around and does horrible things in, in, in the kind of interstices, um, partly because it's just able to, right? You just kind of, when you have power, the problem is, um, like the, the fundamental problem of power is that nobody tells you no anymore. You know, the only people that can tell you no are people with equal or more power. Right. Um, we see throughout history, the consequences of, of telling no to someone with power is that you get wiped out or other people get wiped out uh, as you duke it out. Um, and then they fail anyway. And then they fail anyway, right? Exactly, and then, and then also um, the the warp that happens to a person's uh, character or their ability to be what we would all consider, you know, like a, a, a rational and potentially good, like moral human being, that is basically taken away, or or uh, it's at least atrophied by an experience of power. And so, the greater power you have, for example, if you're a I don't know a billionaire. Um, it's the same fucking thing as being a king or a baron or a person with a space laser cannon and a button, you know? It's the same fucking thing. It, it, you know, it might be arranged in different ways. That reminds me, random, random tangent, but um, in the new Blade Runner, the scariest thing to me was that fucking satellite cannon. Did, did you guys see that movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally, yeah. And they, all they had yeah, to do was be like, the part where the... Yeah, the woman from the the big company like mm-hmm. just had this thing that she could deploy and just like wipe people out from her office. That was the scariest fucking shit I've ever seen. Yeah, that was definitely. I was like, wow, what a world we're about to experience. Haha. 
<laughs> yeah. No, actually, I think I forget. Uh, I think I tweeted about this um, a few months ago. I was talking to a coworker at my last contract, and I was like, so, you know, because we're, you know, he's cool and like our age and and chill, and we had like a few minutes to just do like fucking, you know, just just personal chatting about like what we're actually interested in, not just like a fucking jobs. And I was like, so dude, you know, I can tell he's like, uh, you know, uh, kind of on a wavelength. I was like, so, uh, you know, what, what do you think? Uh, like, which do you think is the most accurate prediction? You know, Mad Max, Blade Runner or Children of Men. And he was like, probably okay. Blade Runner. And, and I was like, okay. And then when we were talking, I was like, actually, I think it's that we're already in Children of Men, especially if you watch the movie version. Yeah, we're already there. It's a bunch of people in cages. It's a bunch of fucking random fucking violence in the streets, you know, but like very state managed. And like everyone's trying to pretend things are normal, but we all know that it's not. That isn't normal. And many as of the problems exactly. from within capitalist societies are caused by low fertility rates. Right, right. And would be solved by open borders, but right, we don't exactly. want to do that. So. Right, exactly. Um, and and of course, low fertility is basically just like a metaphor for like fascist anxiety. Um, yeah, and um, and then through that process, we're going to become Blade Runner through just like this increase in like, you know, uh, high techno mass on the one side and like extreme, you know, extreme shit like laser cans. And then like the kind of evisceration of workers and, and um, the kind of like spewing of waste and junk on the other side, um, which is then to be mediated by the Blade Runners or, or not the Blade Runners themselves, but like the, you know, the fucking synths or whatever they call them. Um, Replicants. Replicants, that's right, sorry. Uh, fucking sci-fi, I love it, but can't keep it straight. Uh, and then, of course, eventually it Repl- turns into Mad Max because it's unsustainable, right? And everybody just fucking blows each other away with their fucking laser cannons. <laughs> um, you know, or at least, you know, I'm Mad hoping Max. it's more like Nausicaa where there's some pockets of uh, nice green valleys where everyone's, you know, living living nice and uh, oh, totally, doing yeah. ecological shit. <laughs> yeah, I think, that, I think that if we do go the route that, that I'm describing, like, eventually there will be that, you know, the, but we'll yeah. have to, we'll have to also endure. The, yeah. There'll be the fucking, uh, Tomekians and stuff running around just being like yeah. dipshits for a thousand years flying like broken asshole bomber <laughs> planes, you know, because that's all that's left, you know, and the bugs are angry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wish the bugs were angry. I wish the bugs would fucking do that. Yeah. <laughs> Filter our water; it'd be nice. <laughs> uh, so we're, uh, we're we're getting pretty up there. Um, Those are pan Africanists. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, I guess I'll just read the conclusion, and then we can do any final thoughts that we have, and then uh, plugs, and and then we'll uh, uh, call it a night. So, uh, the society that we live in could hardly be further from a meritocracy. The best ways to get ahead in life are to be born into the upper class. Impose rationing on the lower class and ensure your upper class friends and family face no consequences for their failures or atrocities. If tens of thousands die every year because of healthcare rationing or millions die in a war to boost oil profits, it's just a cost of doing business. For the rest of us, our options are to continue suffering under a class system or to take power away from the state that is enforcing it. So, John, any final thoughts? Ooh. I feel like that's that's uh, spot on, and I wish uh, 
that uh, taking power away from the state was as easy as writing that sentence. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Definitely agreed. That's the hard part, really. But also getting people to uh, get on board, I think, is, <clears throat> is a pretty hard part as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and definitely, the, like, the one thing is, like, like meritocracy is is sort of, like, not even that far away from... I know we were talking earlier about... Um, differences between um conservatism and liberalism and liberalism has this softer idea of a technocracy but i mean in the end it sort of just blends with i mean other projects like uh saying that we already live in a meritocracy instead of like going through the hard work of like uh establishing it even if uh such a thing were possible to actually put the most qualified people in most qualified positions um, as if that would make the, the hierarchy any more justified if, if you did so. And, and, and instead of just saying that the most qualified people are already in the most qualified positions, it ends up becoming like this sort of um, sort of like a cosmopolitan white supremacy. Sort yeah, of. Basically. Yeah. Basically, yeah. everyone everyone has a shot at at uh being the the chosen ones uh, in a meritocracy, and, and it's just as much as bullshit as um the, the ethnic ethnic versions of that. And I mean, I'm not I'm not sure what the way is for people to realize that they're all in that situation where they're at the bottom. They could be one of the millions uh, dying in war, one of the millions dying from lack of insulin. Um, I mean, they're already doing that. I don't, I don't know what it would take for them to realize that they're doing that collectively as a group. And to yeah. take power away from the state, uh, but uh, I, I hope I, I get to see the beginnings of it at least uh, going on. Either that, or I hope I get my Yang bucks. E- either way, yeah. No, I, I hear you. Um, I think one of, one of the things about uh, the meritocratic uh, myth that that needs to be also addressed this is actually one of the ways that i got into fucking communism is that like i started to think about kind of a like um uh libertarian as in truly libertarian um societies as like i was like okay you know we want maximum freedom but we also want maximum security as in like human social personal security and assurances and because we are not in a true scarcity environment like and, and, and economy uh, and all this right and I and I realized I was like even if we were talking about maximizing potential which is this kind of liberal shit even if we were you know assigning people according to their best possible function in this kind of more meritocratic technocratic kind of way um, the only way that you can use uh, a free uh, it, it, the only way that you can maintain freedom while doing all of that um, is if there were assurances in place for you to be able to um, not just fill a position, but to not fill a position, right? You have to be able to choose unemployment, if you will, of sorts, or to be employed in really any variety of ways in order to uh, not so much rise to the top, but rise into the, the most proper position or the most appropriate kind of, of contribution or work or job or whatever you want to call it, right? Whatever you want to be about that. Um, and, so, and so it seems that you need a socialist 
a libertarian socialist uh, arrangement of some kind, um, at the very, very fucking least, you need a welfare state. And, uh, you know, that's that's like, you know, the, the, the furthest right I'm going to go, right? Um, that's the very least you can do um, in order to get pe- the right people doing the right work at the right times, but doing so for more or less freely, um, rather than being, being either coerced through, you know, wage pressure or, uh, you know, even worse, you know, through, through actual uh, police and, um, or corporate coercion or some combination thereof, which of course we know is, has been very common in the past and is t- still true for a lot of people today. So, it, you know, so that's kind of how I got into uh, a lot of that sort of thinking, um, especially in grad school. And I was like, man, like, I was like, even market socialism, however that might work, sounds okay. You know, because people would be able to do the things they're good at. But then at the same time, I was like, well, if you carry the logic further, right, um, then income disparities are inherently anti-progressive and sort of anti-human because they block those possibilities from happening, right? And they create perverse incentives for people to do one or the other job. So that's another way that I became more, even more radically egalitarian was realizing that um, through literally through, uh, uh, you know, mainstream economic thought, I kind of fell through the crack there. And I was like, the idea of perverse incentives is, is very like valid and powerful. You know, it applies to a lot of things and, but it, it describes the current state of the economy not just weird scenarios where like, you know, the Vietnamese would grow rats to cut off their tails and get reward money from the French, which is a thing they did, but actually the disparity in income between a property owner, you know, like say a rentier or, or uh, a publishing house owner or, or senior editor or something like that, or a fucking technologist of some kind, you know, like a startup motherfucker. Um, and somebody like, me who has to work two jobs commonly now, um, et cetera. Like I could be doing other things with my brain and my body that I would be much better at than like barbacking. Right. But the wage pressure and the available, the quote unquote availability of bullshit jobs, basically. Um, and the, the false scarcity there forces someone like me to limit and constrain my potential, um, through kind of like a negativistic logic. Right. Um, anyway, so that's kind of, you know, for people who might be listening who are like not on board with just like, uh, you know, burning every fucking thing to the ground and uh, starting like a libertarian socialist arrangement in society as fast as fucking possible um, and getting everybody on board with it. Like, that's my fucking argument, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think um, like I, I'm not like uh you know, anti-Marxist, but I do have a lot of problems with Marxism. And I think one of them is, is that the narrative is centered on production and ownership of production and not just the, the bare fact that the upper class like controls what you do. They control what you do with your time. They control what you do with your body. Yep. They control what you wear. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, often control what you think through education and mass media and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the control that is the problem. It's not, 
I mean, ownership is sort of a form of control, but like ownership really only allows you to exclude people from doing something with an object and, or a person, I guess. And control is like being able to decide what is, what is actually done with that object versus like being able to decide who gets to do something with that object. Exactly. And, exactly. Or person again. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I think that leftist narratives should focus more on control because I think people have more of a problem with not being able to decide what they do for themselves than they do with who owns things and uh, who gets to decide uh, like what is like a you know who else gets to do things with what i don't know i've lost the the plot there but you, yeah. i think you get what i'm saying <laughs> no no I, I know what you mean like pe- yeah. people talk about like you know i won't stand up for tyranny until mm-hmm. like fucking corporations like your entire life is just dependent upon these markets which oh. which you have to participate in or die so then you have to go get a fucking job and of course you have to follow the rules of the job or else like you know you have to buy shit so if you're not getting the money and the wages to buy shit, you have to do it. I mean, frankly, I feel like you could sell Marxism to people pretty easily if you started to uh, rebrand surplus value as taxes and uh, your boss as the tax man. And, you know, you just start co-opting all these conservative talking points back into Marxist talking points. I don't know. I don't have enough time to start that grift, but if anyone wants to get started on it and kick me 5% back... Uh, <laughs> no, I'll be here. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, that's actually yeah. uh, uh, surplus value. So <laughs> yeah, right, right. So that's. Yeah, I think you were talking to the right people then, uh, if you want to do something like that. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We would love to be part of your um, small business. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, John, do you want to plug anything? Um, I uh, don't particularly. Uh, have anything uh, you know I'm just a small guy at X John Valdez on Twitter um, but I would say there are a lot of great organizations out there doing things um, Black Socialists of America they have a website so you can Google them they have a great t- Twitter following um, also like Symbiosis Rev which they're working with and um, was it the Jackson um, the Jackson Cooperation in Jackson Mississippi is also another oh, great yeah. organization to check out Jackson. Yeah. yeah, Cooperation Jackson, the actual correct way to say that. Um, one of the greatest things I've ever seen from them is the Jackson Cush plan, uh, which oh, yeah. you can Google and find the, the actual, uh, like, uh, their strategy for everything they're doing. And I think that uh, regardless of where you start, that's some that's a document that should be distributed and plagiarized by every socialist organization in this country. I agree. I agree. Uh, so... Uh, that's all the things I'm going to plug for today. <laughs> Are you also on Pastrami Hour? Is that is that yes. out yet? Oh yeah, okay. that's right. I do two old podcasts. <laughs> I forget sometimes. <laughs> yeah, check out uh, Pastrami Hour with uh, me and Cheech Guevara. Oh nice. yeah. All right, uh, Chris, you don't have anything you want to plug, do you? <laughs> Um, well, you know, I, I'll just say this thing, which is kind of my analysis or, or my kind of my attempt at praxis really is, is uh, something that I've been thinking about for a while and actually has exactly to do with um, Operation Jackson and the Jackson, Jackson Fish uh, plan and district, um, which is that I, I looked at some, some, I overlaid some maps on each other and kind of eyeballed it. And it looks like, um, you know, 
besides a lot of like the you know embedded history and stuff uh, in the Jackson Kush region and, and kind of what they've had to deal with and who they are and, and all this stuff. Um, I, I will say that I think that a lot of our future um, organizing um, in, in a more, um, in terms of spe more specific kinds of places is going to be in the small to medium um, urban zones where there's like a medium amount of population density. So, you know, you can still reach people, you can still build mass and build, um, you, know, uh, you know, these cooperations and stuff and network them. Um, but it's not too far out, so it's not too rural and, and kind of remote, but it's also not too urban where there's just, like, huge, like, cop shit and billionaire shit. And t exactly. Yeah. So I think it's going to be, honestly, in a lot of these, like, mezzanine regions um, and where there's, like, uh, not quite as much coordination that you can seize that and you can um, build better relationships with those locals. Um, so um, folks who are trying to leave the city or folks who are trying to leave the country, think about those middle areas. Um, there's a lot of potential there and also look at maps of future climate change find those middle areas in places that are not necessarily going to be hit quite as bad or if you're more emergency prone um, go to the places that are get, gonna get flooded and burned um, in those kinds of areas and get ahead of the fucking disasters with people because that was that will also help us to um, pull in the people who are most uh, ready to, uh, you know, get together and form coalitions. Awesome. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So um, check out our other episodes if you enjoyed this. I thought it was great. Um, thanks a lot, John, for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, we would love to have you back again. Um, very, very good discussions. I think I'm going to split this into two parts because we went on. It was a nice, happy one. Yeah. Um, so if you enjoyed this, check out our other episodes, neighborsciencepodcast.com. Mm -hmm. uh, our Twitter is at NeighborSciPod. Everything else is at NeighborScience. Uh, we have a Patreon. Uh, I put out one bonus episode, and I was planning to try and do more. And then uh, Chris had to move, and then I yeah. had this two-week trip to yeah. Speaking of pressure on the market. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and then just a bunch of other shit happened, and so yeah. um, I haven't obviously kept up with that, but uh, I, I really want to do it, and I think Chris is interested too, especially if we can get a little extra income from it. That would be great. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, check that out. Uh, I think the first bonus, bonus episode was okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll try and do more. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. <laughs>